1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I am your co-host, the only human left alive who has not seen Tiger King, Mark Bigney. And with me, as always, is my good friend, the man, the myth, the legend, the voice, the Pax, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic. Mark, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you very much. We are going to talk about board games today. Technical difficulties, physical distancing, and pandemic be damned. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news, why it doesn't matter... We're going to have a topic this week, which is the top five games that the Tiger King would own and why. Uh, or rather, since I don't can't really speak to that topic, we're instead going to talk about how to get salt stains out of your games. Or rather, to finally be clear, we're going to talk about how to deal with the games that you just can't play. Which, of course, is a timely issue, but we're going to be broadening it to non-extreme conditions as well. But before we get into any of that... There is our long-running, as-yet-unnamed, retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. This is where we talk about the game we reviewed roughly last year. Walker, what did we review last year?
2: Last year, we reviewed Goo Gong by Andreas Stedling and Game Brewer Games. We love ourselves some Andreas Stedling. It is a fantastic sort of card action selection, drafting, moving around the board, collecting favor for the Emperor, moving ever closer to score points... I still love it, still have played it many times. Looking for there's expansion. Of course, it's being delayed like every other Kickstarter. It's called Pangoon, and it's another, you know, multi, even though later on I'm sure I'm going to talk about how I'm getting sick of these multi-segmented expansions, it's just yet another, you know, add what you want type expansion thing that will, you know, breathe new life into Gugong, and I'm sure will shoot it back up the hotness list so we'll see
1: that was actually one of the things that I felt wasn't quite excellent in Gugong I like Gugong I think it's a very very good Euro game it was a very worthy release but I don't think it's necessarily one of the top tier entrants in Euro management and certainly it pales by comparison to Hansa Teutonica of course but many excellent games do saying that it's not as good as Hansa Teutonica is not really a condemnation by any stretch of the imagination but in Gugong the things didn't really hang together in a way that I really liked the action selection was cool kind of a match between trick-taking almost, or, or, or uh, climbing games, and almost kind of sort of worker placement. But, you know, there was, you sail down this river, you get some jade, you do this other thing, there's this wall that scores points, and it, it, as I say, it wasn't really as cohesive as I would have liked, and not as, say, cohesive as, say, Teotihuacan, which is of similar weight, and utterly unrelatedly, we've reviewed the week after, this one but at any rate i agree with you the gugong is very good i've played it a couple times since we reviewed it i've never really sought it out but i'll happily play it if it's put in front of my face also partially just to investigate whether jade was even remotely balanced but you've played it
2: the jade is a lie mark
1: the jade is a lie yeah but you've played it at least what four or five maybe half a dozen times since we reviewed it
2: 100 percent. yep
1: yeah, you're you're you you bring it to the table. You'll suggest it. You've been introducing it to people, so
2: yeah. Even the solo, right? I even brought it out to try the solo variant, which worked out very well as well.
1: Yeah, so it was
2: one of the ones where where it it keyed off of what action you did and sort of tried to take you know certain strategies away from you. So I thought it worked out pretty good.
1: And that was Gong. So on to the games we played last week. On the continuing march of playing online two-player games, I got to play another game of a Radiant Offline Battle Arena. This is one of the MOBAs that we talked about a few weeks ago in our MOBA Roundup. There is a barely functional tabletop simulator mod that I play that I've been playing with Dr. Stallone. And He's a massive fan of the game, and he always wants to play it. I think it's good. I definitely think in terms of the MOBA genre, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's not at the very top, but it's very functional, and it's very component minimal, and it gets what it wants to get done relatively quickly. It doesn't have minions, which again is one of the things that I really like in terms of MOBA-style gameplay, so it feels a little bit more like a card battler on that kind of spectrum of things. But I am looking forward to the new characters, again, under the aegis of a new expansion that was launched a few, that terminated a few months ago. And it's definitely cheap and cheerful and very good at what it gets done, and definitely better than a lot of the other very bloated kind of battle games with uh, tons of minis and other kinds of things like that. So I've been having a good time with Radiant Offline Battle Arena, probably play it another few times at least before this this whole uh, distancing is done and i continue to recommend it although as i say it's not necessarily my favorite of the genre what have you pl- been playing walker
2: mark you and i got to play this game mark imagine you're a two mile high cosmic giant reptile frog and you <laughs> leap through the cosmos onto this giant fragment of an exploded planet at which time you start gorging yourself and filling your gullet with, with land with mountains and trees and lakes. Get out of my head, walker. How do you know what my dreams have been like? When your stomach is full, you leap into the air and you, you sail through the cosmos to your vault, where you disgorge and throw up all of your, your bounty into your vault. Doesn't that sound like a fantastic game? It does. This game is called "Cosmic Frog got a fantastic theme and has that very interesting resource element where you're jumping down on the planet, and you're you're bringing resources into your gullet in a certain order, and when you bring it back into your vault, you have to expel them in a certain order, and then you're doing this puzzle thing in your vault where as they come out, you get to place them wherever you want, but it's very intricate where you place them because it's going to score in different ways. You know, it sort of sounds like, like an action management game, but that's where the player interaction comes in, right? Where you can throw wrenches into the system, but then it gets a little dicey. See what I uh, did there? Uh, Rack- I see what because, you, there, you know, I it's see it be combat. There. Yeah. See, yeah, that's, that's what I bring to the show, Mark. It's this liberty that I bring. Yeah. So it, it's very random when you start kicking other frogs in the face, which, you know, is obvious when you have two mile high frogs battling it out. What it does I found we only played it once, so I don't want to, you know, go too deep into it, but it's the fact that it seems as though when, when one person, it leads to ganging up, right? If some person gets hurt, then everyone sort of like piles in and takes advantage of this one person being hurt because it's sort of like you have a resource. And when that first person attacks you, you're going to expend some of that to try to defend yourself. And now you've lost out. Now you don't have that anymore and you're low. And now when other people attack you, you don't have it to boost up your powers. So you just keep losing and losing and it puts you behind. And the actions are fairly important, right? You're only grabbing when you take an action, you're usually only getting one or two pieces of terrain and the fight can take if not two more pieces of terrain away from you. So you're losing whole actions out of the fact that you're already losing actions because you're out of commission. So it's sort of like stock, you know, doubles down on the fact that you're, you've been taken out of the game.
1: So I have an important question for you, Walker. Would you play cosmic frog again?
2: 100%.
1: So would I, here's the thing. And this was my initial reaction. I find Cosmic Frog about 95% amazing and 5% immensely frustrating. And the problem is, I don't know if the frustration is a function of just an aberrant play, or if it's apt to go away once I'm a little bit more accustomed to the dynamics of the game. Because as you describe, there's this action management thing going on, there's this resource management thing going on, and there's this form of combat going on, and all of those I adore. Because the resource, and by the way, you buried the lead by not mentioning that the resource is called oomph, You spend oomph to take extra actions. You spend oomph to zhuzh up what you're doing. You spend oomph to defend yourself in combat. You spend oomph to assault other players. So you're in this position where you're harvesting this dying planet... And you spend oomph to do it faster or more efficiently or move around the board better, always with an eye towards knowing that if your oomph gets too low, you are vulnerable to predation. And that part is wonderful. And you can end up in a situation where you've taken the risk, you've got a gullet full of land, and then somebody jumps on your head because you've gotten too greedy. That part I'm completely okay with, and that player interaction I thought was fine. And yeah, maybe sometimes you spend all the resources in the world to to defend yourself, and you roll a zero, and the other person didn't spend anything, and they roll a five. Whatever, fine. I'm okay with that part, because that part is like a risk-reward, pushing-your-luck kind of thing, where you're playing this elaborate dance with the other frogs. Frogs can dance very well, as everyone knows, and... It, it it's really tense and interesting and fun. The problem that I have is, as you say, there's this element that is very, very common in multiplayer conflict games, which is that A pounds on B and then C says, oh, I win. Because if you are out in the, what, what is, if you're in the outer dimensions and you get punted out past the ether, again, there are lots of interesting uh, proper nouns here, but more on that in a second. If you get punted out from the ether and then your vault is vulnerable. Your banked stuff, and that's the part where I get off the cosmic frog train that's where the part where I find frustrating because if I punt you out into the middle of of dimension five or something, I may steal some of your vault that part I'm kind of okay with but the big problem that I have is that then everybody else on top of your attacking this person, then they go get to raid this person's vault. That's, that I, that's the part that I find very unfortunate. It's also the case that it really dials up the luck factor up to 11, because in our game, there were two people that got punted really hard out in the outer dimensions. One person got stuck there for about a full round of the game. Another person got back immediately. The person who got back immediately won, and the person who st- stuck out in the outer dimensions for a long time came in last. And this is purely a function of rolls of the dice. And when you're in the outer dimensions, you have no resources. You don't get to take turns. Your turns are deferred until later. But even then, when your turn when your your actions show up, uh, you're not in the action deck, so you're less likely to take turns in the first place. And then when you show back up in the in the ether, you're you don't get to take blah blah. blah. Anyway, there's a whole lot of being punished for already losing. Losing what's in your gullet, fine. That's a risk reward thing. But the banked stuff, the fact that your banked stuff is vulnerable in the way that it is, really bothers me. The fact that it's vulnerable
2: at yeah, all is fine. Let's go look I just want to go through the action it takes to get it. You have to move to the planet, like all of these things are in action. Moving to the planet, collecting the resource into your gullet, moving off the planet, moving to your vault, and the disgorging into your vault. These are like five actions to get terrain into your vault. And then to lose all of those five five actions on multiple pieces of terrain is is
1: Yeah, the part where you lose your gullet because you, you spent too long and you didn't defend yourself, I'm completely okay with that. Part where you lose your vault, which in turn... And you can lose your vault to somebody who did nothing to send you to the outer dimensions. Again, it's just these opportunistic attacks... And the fact that this further, you know, defeats any sense of energy generation because you build these things called conduits, which relies on a very interesting sort of layered, puzzly aspect. And there's a trade-off between building conduits and increasing your score. Another brilliant little bit of design work that is then completely undercut by the fact that these conduits can be undone in one fell swoop, and you can go from having a reasonably good income to no income at all, which just highlights another aspect of this, which is, The incentives I find miscalibrated, generally speaking in conflict games, I like it when the benefit to the attacker is greater than the downside to the defender right? You do an attack, I win five points, and I steal one of your points, right? You lose a point, I gain five or something. This tends to help mitigate bad feelings and helps everyone keep in the game, and it also helps to incentivize the ability to go gang up on the leader, and everyone gets to profit by that. Cosmic Frog kind of gets it backwards. If my vault gets raided, I tend to lose massive quantities of points, and the people who raid me get small numbers of points. This is not really how I like the risk-reward to be calibrated, precise to say. Now, with all of this said, I am super eager to play again because the stuff that get that that everything else, everything outside the rating of the vault, I adored. I thought it was great. It moved along in a great clip. This is by Jim Felly of Devious Weasel Games. We should have been talking about this earlier. Jim Felly is, to put it mildly, an iconoclast of game design, but this is also by far his most accessible game by no small margin. In part, it's because he's used straightforward terms for once in his career, despite the fact that there are all these technical terms for giant cosmic frogs. Like, for example, uh, this, I think maybe one of his only games that actually has discard piles, instead of calling the discard pile something weird and fantastic, like, you know, the Trove of Forgotten Secrets or something like that. So <laughs> the, the rulebook is very easy to internalize. It's a very streamlined rule set. And it's a lot of fun, except when it isn't. And so I'm very keen to see how it looks with a little bit more experience under my belt, with a little bit more knowledge of the dynamics and seeing if these specific problems tend to fade into the background or take on increased
0: importance
2: yeah it's got it's got that action system like it's sort of like from spheres of influence right where everyone has a bunch of actions in the deck i was sort of when i saw that i was getting really interested i thought there'd be more ways to get more cards into that deck like you know doing something to get more of your cards in so you'd get more actions i thought that would be interesting but and then this is all from reading the rules i thought you know these things would develop Once I played a little bit more and also I thought it was going to be a little bit more like cosmic encounter like everyone has these crazy abilities that are like over the top crazy and I thought that would play into it more but they were you know they 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 did definitely benefit people and they were overpowering
1: but I just thought it'd be
2: a little more trade off back and forth with them.
1: I disagree. I loved how the special abilities work. The in, seated. In, no, I did. I
2: love how they worked. I just thought they'd be even more powerful than they were.
1: Well, but the, the the great thing about it is that they were very, very, very consequential without completely defining the scope of the game. And I think that that balance was appropriate because in the action deck seated in there's this thing called an ether flux, and at that point, largely speaking, many people will then change their abilities. You also change abilities every time you get kicked out of the ether and your vault gets raided, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. At a regular interval, you're cycling these abilities, and so you see a lot of them in play, and the dynamics are constantly changing by that, not in a way that it's impossible to plan, but in a way that variety keeps getting injected into the game on the regular. I thought that was one of the lovely little touches. There are endless lovely little touches in Cosmic Frog. I just need to get my head around the, the fundamental dynamics of, of raiding vaults effectively.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to playing it, like, on real textile on the table with real pieces, giant frogs. I'm looking forward to playing it again, that's for sure.
1: Well, there's also one minor usability element with the officially sanctioned tabletop simulator mod. The mod was actually done with the blessing of the designer, Jim Felly, And we played with with Jim Felly and a couple of his acquaintances. There are (sighs) random—effectively, it's like meteors hitting the earth— And it starts stripping away parts of the planet, which further influences how movement works. And the movement dynamism just shoots through into the stratosphere as the game continues, which is also marvelous. But there's the possibility of having a meteor landing on your head.
2: Yeah, that, yeah that, that happened to me, Mark. Yeah, my, my giant frog got smoked in the melon with a meteor. He, he was yes. not happy about it.
1: I, I can imagine. that Well, are, are giant cosmic frogs ever really happy or unhappy? I don't know. I, I'm i not really a psychologist. That's, that's, a,
2: that's a good question. We're going to have to devote a topic to that, I think.
1: Absolutely. Anyway, but in the physical version, the tiles are arranged in such a way that you can see on the map which areas might be subject to a meteor strike. In the tabletop simulator version, you can't see that. And so it would be a further element of, I think, legitimate risk-reward. Do I want to risk the slight possibility of a meteor landing on my head? Which is very much in the same category of do I want to risk the slight possibility of a two-mile-high frog landing on my head? You know, it's all weather conditions and force majeure, as you would say. That's right,
2: yeah. It's all these, you know, day-to-day life decisions that you have to make.
1: Another quotidian balance and trade-off that everyone has to do. It's a standard, working-class kind of consideration. Yeah, I could talk endlessly about all the little touches that I love in Cosmic Frog. I am just hoping that I'm able to maintain my enjoyment of those in the context of the bits that I find very seriously problematic. And maybe it's just a question of getting over myself, as Jim Felly keeps implying. Jim Felly keeps keeps talking about how, you know, this is not a game for your gamers. You just have to have a thick skin about it. Maybe there's a frog pun in there somewhere. But I don't know if that's true or if this is actually a a serious design element. And again, for that, I'm going to need more experience with the game. But I am looking forward to having future experiences with Cosmic Frog. So that has got to say something. It's true. That was Cosmic Frog by Devious Weasel. I got to play Blitzkrieg, the Paolo Mori almost kind of worker placement, almost kind of area control, almost kind of area majority thing. And Blitzkrieg remains a complete joy for me. It's a 20-minute, really compelling distillation of the system of Dogs of War. We got a review copy from PSC Games, uh, but I was playing on the Tabletop Simulator mod, Natch, and it is sufficiently component light that it is very, very straightforward and very well adapted to that kind of situation. So given that this has been kind yeah, of... Yeah, I was about
2: to ask you about how it went, but I'm sure like now that I'm thinking about how the game plays out, I'm sure there'd be no way for them to get it wrong, really.
1: It, it's one of those areas where all you really need to do is just upload the assets and everything else will take care of itself. And sure enough, that that's more or less what the mod is and that's more or less what it does. I mean, there's one oversight in that the chits were not... Coded as cards, so you can't draw them into your hand. You have to lay them out on the table, which means you do have to drag out an, an area of hidden information. Those of you who are familiar with struggling with the the beast known as tabletop simulator might understand what I'm talking about. But Blitzkrieg is an absolute joy. I, I really, I really do think that it is one of the best two-player games of the past few years, which is no surprise given our enthusiasm for Dogs of War. But it really is a great, great work. And honestly, every time I play a Paolo Mori design, I am very, very impressed. I really think that he is one of the best designers currently, and I'm looking forward to his future output, and I'm looking forward to future plays of Blitzkrieg.
2: Moving on, you and I got to go back in time and get to play one of our retro favorites. We played the World of Warcraft, the miniature game. This is an old pre-painted uh, skirmish game that was put out by Upper Deck, and the designers are... Get ready. You know, there was a whole troop of them. There was uh, Edward Fear, John Ferrero, Justin Gary, Matt Hydra, Anthony Sheridan, Patrick Sullivan. And there's this Tom Harris guy. He was the pizza guy that showed up when John and Justin wanted subs and Matt wanted sushi. And they said, just screw it. Let's get pizza. So Tom showed up and, you know, he helped with the game, I'm sure. So, like I said, this was back in the heyday when pre-painted miniatures rained down on us from above and blizzard decided that they were going to put out this skirmish game using a lot of their assets so those of us who played world of warcraft you know could you know definitely you know slip into this quite easily and not just saying that the actual game mechanisms and gameplay were 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 amazing I, i when we played it again i remembered how how fun it was and i really wish this had caught on more but i guess they just stopped you know like blizzard does you know while we've tried that let's move on type thing what did you think
1: I was reminded of this talking last week about Justin Gary talking about having worked on it while he was previewing the new Ascension miniatures game that's coming out. And I'm like, oh yeah, the World of Warcraft miniatures game. And I actually stumbled upon the Vassal mod. So I have World of Warcraft minis somewhere in my basement. But I stumbled on the the Vassal mod, and I wanted to try Vassal, and this struck me as a good way to get you to try it. Because I certainly wasn't going to be so stupid as to suggest you try a GMT game. That would have been a monstrous mistake or an Magnus. actual war game. And Vassal is actually really good at dead collectible miniatures games. They have a really, really good monster apocalypse mod. They, uh, I remember back at, back in the day, about 15, 20 years ago, when my friends with, uh, in Montreal with whom I played D and D collectible miniatures of all things kept trying to try me to, uh, try, kept trying to get me to try Vassal. But I am now completely and totally a vassal convert. If there is a vassal mod available for a game online, that is what I am going to prefer. It's not perfect, and I will completely recognize that other people are going to have their preferences, but it's definitely the way that I want to do my online gaming. And one of the things that World of Warcraft Mini's game did really, really well is, number one, there was this clock system that we tend to like. You know, you do an action and it advances a certain number of time units, and then your unit acts again. And we actually saw that to very, very good effect in our game, because I had a unit with an ability that cost a single time and it was kind of stinky in a variety of ways and you had a unit with an incredible attack that cost four time units and sure enough that was that definitely influenced the, the scope of how things turned out but in terms of World of Warcraft minis game being a collectible game though they did something that was great. I'm not a defender of the blind buy collectible format but one thing that they did and one thing that is replicated in the Vassal mod was every booster was a working army. It had figures that could all be fielded together. They tended to be relatively complementary. I'm not going to say they were there was a tight army or particularly synergistic, but three units that you could field together plausibly with their own action cards that could be attached to those units. And one of the reasons why that's so is because, another clever bit of the system, any unit can be fielded with any other unit. Every unit has a point cost associated with it, and your victory threshold at the ga- in the game is the sum of the point cost of your unit. If you field three five-point units, you need 15 points to win. If I field three seven-point units, I need 21 points to win. And that was awesome. It was great. It completely blunted the difficulties of army building and the problematic aspects of blind buy collectibles. Well, it didn't completely blunt all the the problematic aspects, but in terms of actually playing the game made things marvelously simple. And in the Vassal mod, all you need to do is click a button that says, give me a random booster, and it gives you a random booster! I mean, yeah. I had a blast. I had a great time. It was a wonderful way to get acquainted with my new favorite method of doing online gaming and it was just such a joy to return to such a a simple skirmishy type thing i had a a blast i'm now in the process of trying to trade for yet more world of warcraft minis because i am a foolish man and i love dead collectible games
2: yeah i should go i have a collection somewhere else i should go i'm sure i think i still do have my world of warcraft stuff i'll have to go out and rip open some boxes it's not worth the risk walker don't leave your house stay in your house it's, I know that's also true. I just have a side note too, because I talked to you about this. It was the Lord of the Rings collectible miniature game, yet another pre painted system by Sabretooth Games. I was looking through a little bit of stuff, you know, one of these, just like, you know, Dragon Dice. It was like still has, you know, the side following and, you know, the 9.2 rule book that people have, you know, updated the tournament rules. And there's still, you know, an ongoing, you know, group of people that are still playing it. I remember it being a fantastic game. So I'm going to. I still have those figures, so I'm probably going to break it out and see if Vassal has a, a a library of those miniatures as well, which my I'm sure they do. My love for
1: you is stronger than my hatred for Lord of the Rings, and that is just an indication of my affection for you, Walker, so I would give it a try with you if you wanted.
2: And that was World of Warcraft, the miniature game, by Upper Deck.
1: Also, to try out Vassal, I played a game of Manoeuvre. Manoeuvre is the... Not quite war game skirmishy Napoleonic thing put out by Jeff Horger and GMT Games in 2008. There's supposed to be a fantasy sequel called Fury that's been floated a whole bunch of times. It's been in development for a long time. It doesn't look like it's ever going to get released anytime during my lifetime, but who knows? But Maneuver is very simple and straightforward. It doesn't really feel like Napoleonic Warfare, except in terms of broad brush strokes. Like the composition of your deck will kind of reflect what nationality you're playing. The French just have very, very good stats. They're just stat monsters. They go and do things. The Russians are very, very good in defense and very hard to dislodge, things like that. But past that, it doesn't look like Napoleonic Warfare, even remotely. For one thing, in Napoleonic Warfare, you did not use cannon fire like a sniper shot to fin- to, to finish off a wounded unit. But anyway, I could talk about that for a while, but I very, very much enjoy the game, and I... Uh, have encountered a lot of Euro gamers that really like Manov. It's a very, very good entry into, so here's kind of sort of what GMT kind of puts out sort of deal. And Manov also has a very good Vassal module. So that was also an opportunity to revisit a game that I've been playing off and on ever since it was released over 10 years ago. And... I am a sucker for anything that gives me just a taste of the flavor of the Napoleonic Wars. I'm not really a fan of the big sort of grand strategic games like War and Peace back in Mark McLaughlin and Avalon Hill in the day. I think it's been reprinted uh, recently. The sort of, Eight hour campaign things where you care about getting the Grand Armée from Paris all the way uh, to Russia and then back again, stuff like that. And eh, not really my bag. But my first exposure to miniatures gaming was historical Napoleonic miniatures gaming and anything that, as I say, that gives me the broad, broad flavors of these things. Like, for example, I could really go for a Napoleonic Wars version of Undaunted. Like, that would probably make me a very, very happy boy. It wouldn't really work, I don't think. But, you know, when it comes to things like Maneuver or Commands and Colors of Napoleonics, another game that I very much want to explore more in the near future. Those are very much what I like in terms of my light, not really historical, but kind of sort of wargaming uh, bits. And so I was very, very glad to return to Manoeuvre.
2: So you and I tried another platform called Board Game Arena, and we played a game from William Attia. He was the designer of Kalus, Mark. Yes. And he, uh, the, from Ysari Games, He they brought out a game called Spyrim. It's like a James Bond 007, uh, like super thriller, where you try to infiltrate no. this base that's around a rim of, vol- no. of a volcano. No. Spy rim. No. no, no, no. So what is it about, Mark? Because I'm sure what you're about to tell me what it's about is way more exciting than what I just said. So it's go ahead, a kind Spyram of about. sort of,
1: but not really steampunky thing where you take resources and turn them into points. Whew. <laughs> Ooh,
2: whoa, stop. I'm I'm shaking. Much more exciting. That being said, I had played spider before and and enjoyed it. This was just as enjoyable. It's got this really interesting. It's one of those games where I don't want to say it's like flotilla, but there's a there's a every turn there's a way you're going to switch modes you're going to go from phase one to phase two and you can do that you know way before everybody else or way after everyone else and it's going to give you certain advantages and certain disadvantages you know you can jump onto actions before they get a chance but you're going to have you know guys left over but it's a very good decision space of when to do that and the fact that it has graduated cards which i love overall i think and the fact it's so fast like i think we played it you know, with a really quick refresher. We played it in like forty five minutes or something crazy. The fact that board game arena doesn't really have an undo or a you know, a check was kind of, you know, wonky. But other than that, I think it you know, went off without any too much trouble.
1: So first off, I really liked Board Game Arena. I'd been trying to play something on Board Game Arena for a while, but it was always either full or down, or there was some kind of crash involved, and so I wasn't able to... I mean, naturally, their usage has spiked over the course of the past month, so I'm I'm, I'm sympathetic. But I really liked it, other than the absence of an undo button. It animated the moves so you could follow what was going on, and you could pay attention to what other people were doing very easily. I'm a sucker for their sound effects. I don't know why, but their sound effects just made me happy.
2: Yeah, that crazy knocking noise when someone joins your room to start a game. It like literally sounds like there's someone at your door. It was crazy. We all
1: thought that somebody was at our door. It was it was, it was, was wild. Uh, Spyrium, I also played a few years ago. And Spyrium, I, I very much put in the same category of a lot of historic games output. Things like... Ispahan or Micarinos or a lot of the other non-Kalus output, which is to say they're all perfectly fine, they're all perfectly functional, maybe they've got one or two clever things, but nothing really stands out. The thing that I've got against Spirium is, number one, by the end of the first round, you've more or less seen the universe of what goes on in Spyreum, right? You're getting and spending money you're getting and spending Spireum, which is pretty much the only other non-money resource in the game. And that, that's more or less it, and that's fine. That, that's not really a knock against it, it's just yes, the decks are graduated, but it's very much the case that, well, in, in Era 1 you have a building that will turn a worker and a Spireum into 3 points, and in Era 2 you're going to find a building that turns a worker and a Spireum into 5 points, and that's pretty much the progression you're going to find. And, um, it doesn't really develop, it doesn't really breathe. The other thing is, you're absolutely right, it's got this interesting tension of, when do I transition every round? And I preferred, I, I I was the one who made the, the comparison to Flotilla because fl- the Flotilla decision is the most interesting part of the game. But sadly, it happens once over the course of a game that's about two and a half hours. In Spireum, you get to make it every round. So six times you have to make this decision to transition between placing workers and using workers. And that part I thought was cool. Unfortunately, the only effective thing that, that really influences is how much money you're going to spend. Because if you trigger an ability really early then, yes, you're probably going to be able to trigger it better than everybody else, but you'll pay more money because there's a whole bunch of workers around the card, and that influences how much it costs. And so that's, that, that's fundamentally what you're talking about. It's just, can I shave a few dollars off of my expenditure? Or do I think I have to throw a few more bucks to make sure that this card is still available? And that's fine. It's just it, the payoff, again, very much like how the cards progress in a potentially interesting way but don't really pay off. I didn't find that paid off in a way as satisfying as I wanted to. Would I play it again? Sure. Would I request it? Never. It was it was fine. I'd I say the same about Ispahan or Mikorinos or any of the other sort of Euros that Istare put out in that sort of five year ish period. I enjoyed the playing. It was nice to try out the, the, the format, but nothing particularly remarkable.
2: No, but the fun it's the, the small time it takes is what, you know makes it playable in my opinion opinion
1: sure but i i can't even really and this is going to sound more harsh than i really mean it to be i can't even really give that as a point in its favor because what i was doing in round one was exactly what i was doing in round six so the fact that it was only 45 minutes long was a saving grace not really an asset if it were like 60 or 75 minutes i probably would have been pulling my hair out by that point because it was just it was already repetitive given that it was a 45 minute long game so even longer than that would have been intolerable i think
2: agreed that's what i mean I, i wouldn't want it any longer than that
1: okay I'm, I'm glad we agree, because otherwise I would have to fight you in real life.
2: There you go, true enough.
1: Also on Board Game Arena, I got to play Innovation. Innovation is one of my favorite tableau builders. This was put out by Carl Chudik and Asmati Games. And I had to go looking for platforms very specifically because uh, there's the version of Innovation put out by Asmati Games, which is excellent and wonderful. And then there's the version of Innovation put out by Yellow, which is has illustrations and is terrible because... Innovation depends very much on very tight, consistent, clear wording, and the yellow version manages to mess that up in many instances. So I played the yellow version a couple of times and never again, but Board Game Arena has the Asmati version of innovation, and I absolutely adore it. I got to introduce it to Dr. Stallone. It proceeded along very, very quickly, and every game of innovation is radically different from every other game. He kept asking me reasonable questions when I was explaining the game, such as, how do I score points? To which I responded, well... There's no default way to score points, and you don't really win by scoring points, except when you do, kind of, sort of, almost, maybe, because everything is a means to an end in innovation, and it is one of the most tactical games I've ever played, because the entire game state could be put up on its head by a single action or a single card play. And that can be very difficult to deal with for some people, but at the end of the day, you can still establish short-term or medium-term goals to try to get to a good position. It's got lovely little elements of tableau building from the splay elements, which are which is very much a sort of characteristic element of a lot of money games, where you're tucking cards and splaying cards, and Carl Chudek loves him, those multi-use cards that have pictures that show different symbols based on where you put them, very much reminiscent of Glory to Rome a little bit in that sense. And I absolutely adore Innovation. I've got the Deluxe Edition in hard copy, and I still haven't played enough with the expansions, although I've played the base game now dozens of times, and I will happily play again The Drop of a Hat, especially because, as I say, the variety is definitely there. So it's disorienting on your first couple of, tr- uh, couple of plays, especially if you're not able to deal with the incredibly tactical nature. And indeed, my ability to appreciate incredibly tactical games is one of the reasons why I'm optimistic about my future playing as a cosmic frog. That's what you call, you call a callback, Walker. That's what professional broadcasters do. I do a callback to 20 minutes in the hour. See, it all hangs together now. It's like an architectonic of an episode.
2: Yeah, you're a professional, Mark. Congratulations.
1: Yeah, thanks, Walker. Your, your vote of confidence is, is, is felt in your, your warm intonation there. Anyway, so I had a great time playing Innovation, and I am hoping to play more on whatever platform will let me do it online. It is, after all, best at two players, although if you get experienced players together, three and four players is doable. Marvelous game, Innovation.
2: So I'm just going to go back to what I was talking about with the multiple expansions. We played Carcassonne again, and we keep adding in all the, you know, the multiple little expansions. This is what they call foreshadowing, Mark. Remember, I did that at the beginning. I was talking about, you know, is that what professional you know, expansions? T- yeah, yeah. Just, just let you know. Anyway, we we also talked, you and I talked about this with Teo Tawakin, right? When you have all these little expansions and you're playing the game, and they're they're so non-consequential that you forget modular to and use ancillary
1: them. just these side exactly bits. so that's yeah. what
2: i'm not saying that we f- forgot that during the game i was saying you know where could i use these bridges you know it never really came up it's like i used a bridge just to say that i used one of these bridges and it just seems to be more and more that we try to introduce all these little zone expansions you're just using them for the sake of using them and trying to remember all the rules for them and when just you know standard zone is just fun enough on its own that being said there's so many we still have to try I'll get back to you, Carcassonne.
1: (laughs) Well, that's one of the reasons why I like the standalone Carcassonne alternative games, because they involve the different ideas integrally. They don't have to worry about the dozens of base game tiles that are not going to have the fancy bridges or doodahs or whatever that they want to introduce. They're like, okay, we've got some interesting ideas for a Carcassonne game. Let's build it into the core game. Agreed. But yes, Carcassonne is always a delight.
2: Those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I just have a bunch of interesting news, Mark. I don't. I, it's all sort of weird stuff.
1: Oh, I've only got boring stuff. I've. I've. All my comments this week are boring. I didn't know that we had to be interesting this week.
2: My my one bit of interesting news is shadows Shadows over Camelot has been has been rumored to be getting a reprint. It's going to be called Shadows over Brooklyn. You know, it's all the descendants of the Knights of the Round Table now live in Brooklyn, apparently, and are hanging out there because that's what descendants of the Round Table do. But anyway, it's not just a, you know, re-theme, re-skin. It's, it's a whole new whole new thing. So looking forward to seeing that. I was never a huge fan of, Cal- you know, of Shadows Over Camelot. It was like sort of like all Me these either. little mini games that sort of, you know, not really tied together, sort of hand management It was fine, you know what I mean, but it never never yelled at me.
1: Yeah, it pioneered the hidden traitor thing very, very well, but the actual gameplay never grabbed me.
2: True, it's like one of the very early cooperative, you know, long, heavier games, you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: That's true as well. So a little bit of editorial policy here in Sober Wrong About Games, and I would just like to clarify something that we really should have clarified last week, because it's last week where we really sort of transitioned into our almost exclusively online existence. And we've been talking about Tabletop Simulator, we've been talking a lot about unlicensed mods. These are mods put up ne- without necessarily the express consent of the creators. And I would just like to articulate what our standards are for now, because somebody very kindly brought this up in the, f- the forums, just wanted to hear what we thought about the morality of these various mods, because we don't deal with legalisms here in So Very Wrong About Games, but we do have uh, a very strong emphasis on principled editorial stance. And so this is what it, what we have right now. We are going to be limiting our discussion of mods to games that either, A, we have a physical copy of, So I have a physical copy of Blitzkrieg in my basement. So I feel comfortable playing the tabletop simulator mod because we're in extreme conditions. I have a copy of Spirit Island in my basement. And when I played the Spirit Island mod with Huey, Dewey, and Louie, there were three physical copies of the game in ownership amongst those four people. So whether that is consistent with your moral standards that's fine, whether that's consistent with your legal understanding of copyright law is entirely beyond the, the, the bounds of the discussion, but that's that's the standard we have, or uh, officially sanctioned online implementation. So some tabletop simulator mods are officially sanctioned, and then of course there are all the officially licensed ones, like for example all the ones on Yukata or Boitage or Board Game Arena or any of those other places. So if a mod is unsanctioned and we don't have any rights to it ourselves, we are not going to be discussing it here on the podcast. Uh, So that's where we are now. We are not condemning anyone with different standards, and we are reserving the right to modify these standards going forward. I did actually reach out to a number of game designers and publishers to hear their opinions on what this is because I wanted an insider industry perspective on what they thought about tabletop simulator mods specifically because tabletop simulator is in an unusual position because it is a paid product with free mods that are often based on copyrighted materials. Other, other things are are other issues, but so that's where we are right now in terms of our editorial policy about tabletop simulator mods, because some people were curious to hear about it.
2: Now onto my silly news, Mark, what do you, what do you get when you take two really bad games and you mash them together to make another game, you get an even worse game. <laughs> just in case, just in case people were wondering, usually two negatives make a positive, but it has been proven this does not happen in the board game industry. Uh, Hasbro has decided to make it take out this line called mashup, and they have Monopoly Jenga, Twister Scrabble, Candyland Connect 4, and taboo speak out doesn't that sound like super fun
1: i have to admit i would play a monopoly jenga i would i would actually be interested in seeing so how that so monopoly jenga
2: is all it's 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 jenga but all the different blocks have properties on them and you have to collect them as you pull them out so that you know might be fun to play once or twice
1: this actually strikes me as the board game equivalent of chess boxing yes are you familiar <laughs> with chess boxing Yes, where you, you
2: you box for five for a few minutes and then play chess, then do a chess move and then box again. Yet, yeah. yeah, that's great for the brain cells, apparently. I'm sure. I was going to say, speaking of being hard on the body, how about the Twister Scrabble, where you have to distort your body to try to spell out words? Maybe I, I'm not sure. More likely, you spin the dial, and whatever letter comes up, you have to move your hands and
1: legs, too. I have no idea. I'm freaked out by Taboo Speak Out, because as you commented yourself, this is very poorly timed. This is a, this is, you play Taboo, but you have some sort of weird, and I I don't want to be too crude, but it looks like an elaborated dental dam, basically. Yeah, Speak Out,
2: I'm not sure, I'm not sure how Speak Out worked, but I think you, you put out this weird plastic thing into your mouth that distorts your lips and you have to say, you know, 15 syllable words and people have to try to understand what you're saying. So sticking things in your mouth and le- letting people use the same thing to stick in their mouths during this time and day and age is pr- is not the, the best marketing ploy.
1: Yeah, I, I, the way I parse it is uh, speaking moistly the board game.
2: There,
1: <laughs> ex- exactly. Some solid Canadian political content there. We have been nominated for a Golden Geek Award. We are incredibly humbled, sincerely, and we are very sincerely thankful to everyone that went out and nominated us, and we would very much appreciate your support of The Next Stage. I, I, I say that with some degree of trepidation, though, because I don't really understand social media, and uh, I'm not sure that Walker does either but maybe walker should be our social media director going forward because what i did when we were nominated was i put out a tweet saying thank you so much for nominating it's uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be nominated here's a link please go support us which may, which was immediately followed like 10 minutes later by a lot of other people nominated saying it's an honor pleasure to be nominated and it's such a pleasure to be in the company of all these other people and then they just included the names of all the nominees and they didn't say anything about please support us it made me feel like a jerk it made me feel like some sort of hard campaigning jerk face and all these other people are being so gracious so anyway i feel very embarrassed and i feel very ashamed and that i don't understand <laughs> social media uh but please vote for us anyway i guess <laughs>
2: yeah i love it i love it like i was trying to say last time but got so rudely interrupted was i just like the fact because it gets our name out there so people that may not have heard of our show might give it a listen and and that's all i care about and i'm really happy that we get to be amongst so so many other great names in our in our media
1: sphere here yeah you see that's the gracious thing that's the thing that i failed to do again But, yeah, I agree with the sentiment entirely. We are very, very pleased. Thank you, everyone, for supporting us. Thank you also to all the other great podcasts in the arena. I'm
2: going to do two little quick uh, Kickstarter news. If you just have uh, $450 kicking around, you can get your own copy of Cloudspire. That works out to be $650 Canadian (laughs) dollars. Cheap at twice the price. And the other weird thing is... Uh, Reichbusters is something that I pledged for. It's from Mythic Games. It's being fulfilled now. People have been getting their copies, and I've got my shipping notice for mine. But right as soon as soon as I got there, now there is a Kickstarter for Wolfenstein by Archon Studios. They're the same ones that did uh, Load, the board game. And it's almost identical... Sort of, you know, I don't know if you, if people know Reich Busters, sort of like occult World War Two, sort of like Wolfenstein thing. And if you watch the videos, they're so identical. It's, it's sort of, it's just seemed really weird to me. Check it out if you have the time. You know, uh, Reich Busters, Wolfenstein,
1: it's such a weird, weird to me. And that's what I, why I put it in the news. Occult Nazis has been a staple of genre fiction for a long time. So.
2: No, but I mean like even the fact that that during the game you might, you know, uh raise the alarm and you know it's the same sort of thing it showed the figures and they're all animated and the red lights went off and it it was very similar in the way hmm. that the 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 video, you know, played out and everything else it just seemed seemed odd and that's why I wanted to bring it up. Okay. That is all of the news and why it really doesn't matter and it's just sort of interesting to weird people like me. Now, on to our topic of the week, which is what games would the Tiger King own and why? I really think <laughs> No. So in this in this pandemic area and just just in general, people have games in their collection that sometimes collect a little bit of dust. And it's not because they're bad games or 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 anything. They just for whatever for multiple reasons, which I have some reasons for here, which I'll talk about in a moment, they just don't get to the table. And therefore tears fall and there's stains on these poor board games, and, and what can we do to get them onto the table?
1: One of the things that i found is that this is particularly a consequence for, shall we say, high-variety users such as the two of us, right? We before Even before we had the show, our collections underwent a substantial degree of churn. There's always something new. There's always a new thing we want to try. Sometimes it's a new release. Sometimes it's because we're rediscovering Leo Colovini and we're looking for 20-year-old games again. And so this sets a high bar for throughput of usage, and it's natural that in this context there are some things that we're just not going to be able to get to the table with the frequency that we want, either because it's a new thing that people don't want to try, or it's an old thing that people don't want to play again, or whatever. And this is just a function, a consequence of maintaining large collections in many instances. So I've been struggling with this problem somewhere or another ever since I've, I've been in the hobby, and I've through the years developed a number of coping mechanisms that all, that no doubt will come up, but I just want to stress that this is a perennial problem for users like us.
2: Correct. Other reasons could be that your group just doesn't like the game. It could be something you picked up, you knew you would like, or played it somewhere else and you picked it up for your group, but they just don't seem to like it. Like you I also have like you said, there's just too much new stuff to get to, so you don't get to a particular game. The rules load of a particular game might be super high. Beginning threshold, so it just stays on the shelf. We've talked about this kind of stuff before. And like we just talked about too many expansions, you open up the box, you don't know what to play with. There's so much stuff there that you just say, forget it. We'll play something we already know. Or maybe you just don't have a group at all. Maybe you've just moved to a new place or you you know, you live somewhere or or just you know, they just don't play that type of game where you are. Those are some other reasons. I'm sure there's there's hundreds of others, but those are the ones that
1: I have down. Yeah, th- that pretty much sums up uh, the the series of difficulties that I've encountered in terms of getting some some games to the table again. So, should we talk about some of the coping mechanisms that one can use to deal with these uh, this 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 terrible situation? Sounds good. So, one of the ones that I've discovered lately, I haven't been using this for very long. This is only a couple of years old. And I've actually had a great deal of success with this because having a good game in my collection going unused is like a a psychic splinter. It's just something nagging at me in the back of my head. And every time I want to go to a game night or every time it's time to pull out a game, I'm like, why can't I get this game played? But I found a way to sort of exercise this demon. It's an expensive recourse, but I find it very, very uh, valuable. And that is to follow the advice of noted war game reviewers, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and that is just give them away. And this happened most uh, saliently recently in a case of Kingdom Death Monster. You talked about the thing of like opening up the box. There's too much stuff, putting it away again. And that's very much where it was with Kingdom Death Monster. You know, the, the, the weight of paperwork, the fact that we'd already sunk a lot into it, but then paused for a long time. The, the, the burden of getting back into Kingdom Death Monster made me apprehensive. But at the same time, I felt bad about having all this stuff that I wasn't getting used. And in particular, Huey, of our acquaintance, very much wanted to play more Kingdom Death Monsters. So I said, you know what, Huey? You should take all my Kingdom Death Monster stuff. It's yours now. This is now a Huey problem, not a Mark problem. And it, honestly, it's worked out great. If I had accidentally lost it in a flood, or if it had been burned down or stolen or lost or something, I would feel the loss keenly. But because I know it's in a good home and it's, it's, it's being used by somebody, I'm able to think, ah, well, at least it's being employed. And so I, I fundamentally I have to say that Anthony Kiedis is right. Why does everybody want to keep it like the Kaiser? Just give it away now.
2: Give it away. Things. One of the things I do is like get the game out, reread the rules. Instead, like I remember when I used to go to board game nights, I used to bring like you know eight, you know eight to ten games with me. Now I just bring like two. I've read the rules. These are the two games or like when people come over to the house, you know, I'd say, okay, well there's five people. I bring out a stack of like eight games and say, you know, you know, pick one of these type thing. Now I just bring out two, you know, these are the two that we're going to play. You know, we're going to play one of these, you know, you guys pick it. And so I found that's a good way to get, you know, unplayed games to the table.
1: I wish, I, I used to do that in some contexts, and in some contexts I still do, but in one of the contexts where I have the maximum latitude of trying stuff that I know our core group won't necessarily enjoy, because, you know, we spend most of our time playing with Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and if there's something that they don't like or one of them dislikes strongly, what that means is that that, that thing is relegated to a public game night type of environment. So, for example, just off the top of my head, uh, I know just two examples, two brilliant releases of, of 2018, I know that Spirit Island is not something that you want to play, and I know that Sidereal Confluence is something that you don't want to play. Uh, Serial Confluence also is not something that Louis wants to play in, in your defense. And so what that means is if I want to play something like Sidereal Confluence, and I need like four or five people around a table in order to play it, it has to be in a specific environment. And then I think, okay, so I'll bring it to the the open game night at the store. But then, what if there aren't enough people? Then I'm left with nothing, and I know that if I'm left with nothing, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the open games available for demo, which is a haven for trash, and I'm going to be stuck with something like that. So, as a result, I'm still forced in some context to bring, like, five different games. Okay, this is the game for three players, this is the game for four players, this is the game for five players, and this is the one I actually want to play. But I need to bring lots of backups. But yes, I agree with you entirely, being a little bit more focused is very very helpful
2: well that's the other thing i did back when i actually had free time is that it was monday nights was the night it was like this is the game we haven't played for a while this is how many players it is you know i would you know put it out there first five players to say they want to play it then they're the ones that are coming over to play this game type thing so you know you, you know i wouldn't have to worry about people playing a the game they didn't like or whatever it's true
1: those were good times
2: so now I just have a, a list of a bunch of games here, Mark. Do you have any other reasons that you wanted to go over quickly?
1: Well, one more thing I'd like to stress, and that is that one, the other sort of coping mechanism that I have in terms of coming to terms with these games that are not getting played is typically it's it's as I say it's because of the fixed preferences of some of the people around the table. And I found, and this is going to sound corny to some people, and it's going to sound incredibly obvious to others, but for me this has been a bit of a, a, of, a of a growing process. I just try to appreciate the people that are keeping me from the games that I want to play. You know, this is because this person's at the table, I can't play the game that I want to play. So now I just have to focus on the fact, the things that I appreciate about that person. So, you know, I know that you have terrible taste in friends and that you're borderline illiterate, but I know that you are willing to play a dexterity game at the drop of a hat, right? So even outside your, your manifest personal charms and, and virtues as a human being, I know that any weird dexterity thing I can put in front of your face and you're gamely going to give it a try. Whereas a lot of other gamers would be like, eh, it looks like a kid's thing or whatever. So, for all the things that you won't touch, there's lots of things that you'll be, you'll be down to try. You know, similarly, uh, you know, Louis has some reading comprehension issues because English isn't his first language, but I can play GMT games with him. I can, I can push a historical war game in front of him and he'll be down to try that in any context. You know, uh, again, like this, this goes for anybody. Like Dr. Handsome is not going to play co-ops, but he'll play heavier Euros and Pax Renaissance at the drop of a hat. So, again, it, it's about, Focusing less on the things that they're keeping you from and just focusing more on the unique social opportunities that these people bring in the context of gaming. Again, even independently of their value and worth as a human being. I found that helpful.
2: Know your crowd, right? We've always said. It's true. So I've divided these games up into two categories. As in things that most recently, due to things that have been happening that I, i'm I'm weeping over the fact of not playing anymore and things stuff that has been ongoing for a, a long time.
1: Sakatumi to me, Walker.
2: So three things, three games that I'm upset about just recently. Grail. you and I reviewed Grail recently. We had just Grail a campaign. One, it yes. was it was very interesting, and the fact that we can't get together to play it is quite painful.
1: Yeah, I was listening to the episode recently, and we were both saying, okay, here are the manifest problems with the game. It's clunky like this. It's problematic here. Do we want to keep going through the campaign? We both said yes. And very shortly thereafter, we could not be in the same room with each other. So, (laughs) yes, absolutely.
2: That's one thing I haven't looked at yet. If there was an implementation on, on Tabletop Simulator for Grail, although I think it would be kind of painful. I
1: would not want to do it online, no. Crew is the other
2: one, not just the fact that it's a great game, but it's just, just one of those great, everyone's sitting around the table, enjoying this, you know, event together type, you know, it's just one of those friends getting together to play a game type episode, so.
1: Agreed, Definitely. I think there's a reason why through the centuries trick-taking games have been so popular at social gatherings. There's just something about, especially a simple trick-taking game, where you're just sitting around and you're tossing cards out and there's constant movement and you're always on to the next trick. It's just very, very amenable to very pleasant social interactions. And I'm very glad that we tried it on Tabletop Simulator. It was functional, but I'm looking forward to being able to play it in person, yes.
2: 100%. And I've already talked about Reich Busters. It's going to be showing up the door soon, and just the fact that Is not going to be played for at least, you know, three to four weeks is kind
1: of, you know, heart hurting. It's true. In terms of recent releases, what I've got is Mezzo, but Mezzo, at least I can play solo. Mezzo I played a couple times, just enough to get really intrigued before Game Nights stopped being a thing. There's the brilliant revenge movie simulator, Vengeance, whose expansion, director's cut, has been fulfilled. And I have a copy. I have a copy sitting at a shipping box in upstate New York across a border that has been closed to non-essential travel because, you see, lately I've, I've been very clever. said, oh, I'll just have things shipped to my American address and that way I'll get access to things two weeks ahead of time before all the rest of the rubes in Canada do. What could possibly go wrong other than... What, what, that's
2: such a fantastic idea. There's no way that the border will close to just never. pedestrian travel.
1: Yeah. We are a haven of normalcy, though, in times of crisis. So let us cease talking about That's right. difficulties. Now let's talk about more perennial complaints that we've had for more long standing periods of time. Mark, how many times have I said I love playmats? Neoprene, large
2: maps, love them. Every time you there's a love, Kickstarter, you I the order neoprene. them. Get them all the time. Why do I love them, Mark? I don't understand it. Because when I was like going through this list, I'm looking at all these neoprene mats that I have that I have never played on before. So I don't understand why I like neoprene mats. That's a good point. I have the Lords of Hellas mat, never played on. War Room mat, never played on. Game of Thrones, huge neoprene mat, never played on it. Uh, Got all the new uh, Catacombs, you know, Kickstarter with, you know, all all the new uh, maps there. No, haven't played on those yet either. It could very well be that getting the neoprene mat is the kiss of death. Apparently. The only one I have, I know I have the rising sun one. I know I've played on that, but all of the other ones haven't even been used yet. The one that I did play on was uh, Champions of Midgard, right? We've played a few times on that giant mat that I have.
1: That is true. Well, in Lords of Hellas, we were playing not terribly regularly, but with some degree of frequency. And we never played it once you get the neoprene mat. So clearly it's the fault of the mat.
2: That's right. It is. It puts the nail in the coffin for sure. So that's my rant on 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 my playmats that I don't get to use.
1: <laughs> well, for me, it's mostly the games that I have the greatest difficulty getting to the table, and that make me somewhat uh, uh, salty. Is are the large player count games because all you need is one person not to want to play them and suddenly you're not playing a six player game or an eight player game you're playing two groups of three or two groups of four and this is particularly pointed in terms of the greatest social deduction game of all time The Resistance there's usually one or two people that are like oh the Resistance is too good and has too much quality decision making and is too tense and interesting I would rather play some piece of problem for the mass market that is completely devoid of any interest or, or salience and so we then end up playing Secret Hitler. This is also true to a certain extent of Guards of Atlantis. Guards of Atlantis, being an excellent no-luck strategy game, naturally has some degree of divisiveness. There are some people on acquaintance, like Louis, for example, that don't really appreciate Guards of Atlantis, and that's fine. Many excellent games are not for everybody, and Guards of Atlantis is one of them. And so Guards of Atlantis is harder to get to the table than we would like, especially since it's ideally for an even player count. So there you are, you've got got the four players that really want to play Guards of Atlantis, and then a fifth player shows up, and you're like, "Mm, well, that's that. The same is true of Sidereal Confluence. I actually I was led to believe I've been following this because out of a sense of morbid curiosity, some people have been playing Sidereal Confluence online through a tabletop simulator mod. It takes them five hours and they have to use Discord to set up like five sub rooms in order to then go into separate servers and separate no. voice lines. No,
2: seriously.
1: no, seriously. Like, I, I love Serial Confluence. As you well know, it's one of my favorite games of the past few years, and it is definitely my favorite trading and negotiation game, certainly in the Elysium Quadrant. And I would never consent to play under those circumstances. Never, Boy. ever, ever at all.
2: All right, I'm going to just blast through a bunch of these games. Big City. You saw this great big Kickstarter that I just got. have been able to try it, dying to get it to the table because it's going to look fantastic. Mysterium finally, because you and I, we both love Mysterium. You have the Polish version. I just wanted my own version with the book because I think the book would be super handy. You know, I'd throw out all the silly North American rules anyway because, you know, the wind conditions are awful. So I haven't been able to try that.
1: That's interesting. You, you had very firmly adopted the policy of never getting games that were already owned locally
2: well, this was something that came up. It was like a secret Santa and, and, you know, they had to buy me something and I don't, you know, there's nothing that I really want outside of the board gaming. So it's like, I wanted to get them something they could get easily at a, at a, at Amazon or something. And it's like, well, I've always wanted, you know, the, the, you know, a book version of Mysterium, you Fair know, enough. that was handy. So Sorry, not
1: book, the screen, the, the screen with the lovely screen. The, Yeah, yes. the big
2: screen. It's, I think, super handy. Anyway. Moving on, Batman, Gotham. I know we both, you know, the rule book was awful and everything, but just the 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 some of the mechanics were fairly solid in my mind. I wish I could play that more. Formula Day has always been one of my favorite games.
1: Oh, yeah, you never get to play that.
2: I never get to play it. Part uh, of that is my I know fault, people, sorry. Just, a lot of people say it's way too long and, you know, it gets sort of samey after a while. It's like, oh, I'm going to take another risk reward into yet another corner. I would be one of those people. Gloomhaven. I wish we got to the table more, same with the uh, Kingdom Death Monster, but I have pledged for Frosthaven. I think I'm going to set up something maybe with my son and just sit and set a night and, and do it and work it through or play it solo, one of the others. I just want to get a feeling of completing one of these things. You know, I love Space Alert. I wish we got Space Alert to the table more. You know, it has how it has the campaign system and a way to track your missions or the thing, and it has an expansion that I've never really looked into. You know, I've looked through some of the cards and and. It's like one of these intricate puzzles games that I wish I got more.
1: You know what, Walker? That one's doable. You know, nobody in our immediate circle of friends has any strong objections to Space Alert. We both love Space Alert. That is something we can do. That is something we can work on.
2: And then the War Room talked about it. It's a giant game, so I can see why it would stay on the thing. I think I'm just going to do... I have a big birthday coming up as well. We did the big Civ game for your birthday. I think on my birthday we're going to do a big War Room game, so at least it'll get to the table once. And that's my last weeping let me just wring out my shirt once again i've ruined another (laughs) shirt with salt stains but that is all of my weeping of games mark what have you got
1: well i've already mentioned some of the the the, the large player count games uh that are difficult then there are you know there's the legion of two-player games where it's just a function of cycling through the time battle or second edition Rum and Bones, both of those suffer from some of the, there are lots of components involved difficulty, so they don't travel well, and it's difficult to manage all the components. But actually getting to play the game, they're relatively straightforward, and it's not like you have to worry about 15 million expansions, because the expansions serve to give you variety in the forces you'll field, but once you field the forces, everything is straightforward. And then, so, But these games tend to compete with things like claustrophobia, and even simpler things like Blitzkrieg, and so at the end of the day, it can get a little bit difficult to 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 get them out. Uh if you'd asked me a while ago I would have said uh, things like Pax Renaissance but I've been successful in finding some people that really enjoy Pax Renaissance so that's been very very thankful. And honestly in terms of going back to some of the older stuff I've really been fortunate lately of of just remembering oh yeah like uh in the shadow of the emperor or uh, things like Bridges of Shangri La, I've been I've been very fortunate lately that I've been able to get some of these things back into not necessarily circulation or rotation, but be able to play them every couple of years. Because I know it sounds petty and silly, but if I'm able to play you know those light to mid weight Euro games that were released twenty years ago every couple of years or so, that feels like a win to me, and that feels like I'm I'm making good use of of my collection. And so I've been relatively satisfied in that sphere. But one thing that I've been doing lately. And this, I've, I've been getting, deriving significant enjoyment out of this, and I, w- I would recommend this to anybody who is feeling alienated with their hobby or alienated from a, from a specific game. And again, it sounds stupid, but I've been getting tremendous value out of it. I just sit down with the components. I just get the box, sit down. I don't even set it up. I just, you know, open up the box, rifle through the cards, look at some of my favorite cards, reread them again, just physically manipulate some of the components i've been doing this with mezzo for example and you know, i wanted to play mezzo it's got a solo mode which is pretty good but it's not quite the same as playing multiplayer i just like to sit down and look at the the, the beautiful god figures and go through some of the cards and look at some of the fun effects that that, that come up i've done this with one of my favorite almost kind of not quite war games called La Revolution Francaise La Patrie en Danger, which is this absurd five to six player game that I haven't played in forever, but I will never ever ever get rid of. I'm just sort of just sitting down, going through the counters and looking at the map sheet and remembering all the good times I had back when I was around people with good taste. But
2: Ah uh, memories.
1: It's true, it's true. But but It is easy to underestimate the appeal of these games as physical objects, even independently of them as works of game design. And so I've derived significant benefit from just having some time with the components, even divorced of gaming context. And that's made me pretty happy. On that note, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. It's always good to end on a happy note. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, at gmail.com You can reach me, Mark Bainey, on Twitter at the like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.
2: See you next week, and like Mark was saying, with the social media stuff, we're going to try to plan to do some stuff online with all of our listeners, so stay tuned for that. We'll post it on our Facebook and in the Guild. So, hope to see you this week. Peace!
1: You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.